0: Thank you again for joining us for today's Friday Gallery Talk, and welcome to those of you who are just joining us. Um, I'm delighted to introduce uh, Melissa Ho, who has curated this exhibition out of the ordinary. Here's Melissa. Hi. Thanks for joining me. My name is Melissa Ho. I'm a curator here at the Hirshhorn, and I'm here to introduce you to this exhibition called Out of the Ordinary, which I organized out of our own collection. So in other words, all of the works in the show are things that belong to the Hirshhorn. For those of you who have spent some time in our galleries, you'll know that we also um, showcase our permanent collection on the third floor, but upstairs, We tend to organize the galleries by rough art historical or chronological groupings, Um, and also we present many single artist galleries. Down here we do something a little bit different, it's a chance for us to work a bit more intuitively and to organize thematic uh, installations that encompass a much greater uh, time spread and also many different media Um, so it's a chance for us to work Uh, like I said, intuitively, creatively to try to draw out some conceptual or expressive or methodological commonalities among a group of work that might otherwise seem very diverse and that's certainly true of this exhibition. Um, The works in this show with a single earlier exception date from the 1960s through today, so it's a span of 50 years or so, Um, and they vary widely in material and form. So we have painting, drawing, sculpture, photography, um, digital animation, even a slide projection in the show. Um, So you might ask, what are the points of commonality? There are a couple themes that I tried to draw out in this um, exhibition. One, I was looking for instances in which artists used a process of copying or imitating or duplicating as a method of creation, and two, that they used as their starting point something that came out of ordinary daily life. Um, It might be a simple physical object, like a sink or a stick of butter. Um, It might also be an image, and uh, by which I mean an already existing image, specifically in many cases, um, a photo reproduction, like a clipping, a picture cut from a magazine, for instance. And in some instances, it is the sort of banal, natural, or social landscape that surrounds us every day. In addition, all of the works in the show share a certain deadpan attitude, and I just make that point because that kind of straightforward factual or quasi-factual demeanor is something that's historically specific. Um, I had mentioned that almost all the works are from the 60s till now and that really reflects that it was in the late 50s that this change happens. There's very much a shift away from the ethos of abstract expressionism. we had these values of individual creative expression and also this idea that art was a existential enterprise that transcended daily life. Um, starting in the late 50s as I said and into the 60s you more and more have artists dropping certain parts of conventional authorship using things like um, group production or chance and also there's much more of this breakdown of the perceived division between art and life so people are looking to all forms of visual culture, material culture as um, inspiration. One artist that I mention in the intro text, even though he's not in the show, who's important for this point is Jasper Johns, because it was his uh, first solo show in 1958 at Leo Castelli Gallery, where he showed his paintings that are based on the American flag, based on targets. Um, That was a a real signal moment in that shift, uh, because Johns, was painting, in his words, things that the mind already knows. So he's choosing something that's already familiar, is already conventionalized, is established, and that everybody would recognize as his subject matter and one of the reasons he, he explained um, for doing this is that it took some of the decision-making out of the art-making process for him because of course when you're painting something like an American flag there's a lot of decisions you don't have to make because the composition already exists. So the works in this show very much follow in that tradition, a tradition that says that you can be a copyist and at the same time also be a creator, and that you don't have to start from some kind of mythical ground zero. You don't have to create art entirely out of your own intuition. You can start from something that's grounded in the familiar and the everyday. So I'm going to try to fairly economically move us through the galleries, Um, but of course if you have questions about particular works as we go along, feel free to interject and ask. The work here on the title wall is a drawing by an artist named Via Selmans. She began in the late 1960s to use photographic images as the models for these very precise, unemotional, uninflected pencil drawings and her subjects were usually things like landscapes, seascapes, and skies and she's somebody who has actually mentioned Johns as a kind of predecessor and like Johns, she's turning here to um, A pre-existing structure, in this case an image, uh, as a way of taking some of the decision-making out of her own art-making practice. In this case it's a photo that she clipped from a a magazine. It's a photo that came from a Soviet satellite that took a photograph of the surface of the moon, and she's not trying to hide the fact that she is copying from a photograph, quite the contrary. She's really drawing our attention to it, the image is doubled, which you may not notice at first glance, but as as you look at it for any length of time, you see that doubling. It, on some level, has to remind you of something you know about photography. Most of us, well, these days, most photography is digital, but of course in 1969, a double image is something that everybody would have been familiar with from their own snapshots. So she's really drawing our attention to the different layers of mediation, the different layers of quotation and duplication that um, lie behind this this drawing. Um, It's also worth mentioning that just at the same time, in the later 1960s, another artist, um, Selman's is working at that time in Los Angeles. But... At the same moment, unbeknownst to the two of them, I believe, Gerhard Richter, working in Germany, is doing a very similar thing. He's exploring photography and the sort of impersonal character of photography, vernacular photography, through his painting, and later in the exhibition, there's an example of one of those Richter paintings based on a uh, snapshot, so keep your eyes open for that. This work is called Display Stand with Madonnas. It's by a German artist named Katharina Fritsch. It's from the late 1980s. Um, the starting point for Fritsch for this work was a souvenir figurine of Our Lady of Lourdes. There's a grotto in Lourdes, France, where the Virgin Mary was said to appear um, in the mid-19th century. And eventually, a sculpture of the Virgin Mary was made and placed there. And since then, pilgrims visiting the grotto are able to go away with a souvenir duplication, duplicate of that um, of that sculpture. So these are things that are sold as domestic devotionals. Um, People put them in their gardens. Fritch has taken one of these and cast it and created 288 copies and painted them this shocking optic yellow and stacked them sort of supermarket style nine levels high. A visitor also mentioned, uh, I hadn't thought of this comparison, had pointed out that it seems to be visually echoing the Tower of Pisa, where another sort of um, site, uh, a tourist site, where you might take a souvenir home. The thing that I have thought about is how the structure of this really echoes some of the strategies of pop art as well as minimalism, both, both uh, art movements that evolved in the early 1960s. Pop art of course in the sort of reference to mass-produced commercial forms but of course it's a little bit of a twist on that because it's a more complicated instance where this icon is both a commonplace household item but it's also Obviously loaded with symbolic significance, um, but she's presenting it a little bit like you know a bottle uh, of detergent in the supermarket. Minimalism in the sort of um, uh, formal syntax, the repetition, um, the geomet- simple geometric patterns, the sense of series. And I should also mention that um, I'm, there are 288 of the Madonnas that make up this piece, but the artist has also produced that yellow Madonna as an unlimited edition. And so she's really embracing the, the fact that you can't point to any single original. Really, even in what acted as her original was a multiple and now she's making a, a completely open-ended multiple herself. Behind us here, just rounding out the introductory gallery, is a work by Robert Gober called Three Parts of an X. It's part of a series that he did in the mid to late 80s of sinks. Uh, The first, of course, is not, you can tell, it's not a functional, um, literal sink. Um, People have described these works as imitation ready-mades because they are handcrafted but obviously meant to evoke a mass-produced, industrially-produced enameled sink. But he's really, you know, in the same way that Selmans points out that she's copying by hand and sort of making her own adjustments, her own interpretations to that image. Gober, in the way he's slathering on that um, plaster, so it's so sensual, it's almost like cake frosting. It's something that you want to touch, although of course we may not touch it here. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a funny combination of something that uh, reminds us immediately of something that is machine made, but is so obviously handcrafted. It's significant, of course, that he's taken the function out not only in the fact that it's not made out of metal, it's not enameled, it wouldn't be waterproof, but he's flipped it, he's made these different versions of the sink, and the earliest ones that he made were much more straight-faced, there were more, he described those as portraits of real sinks that he used in his studio. But then, as he progressed through the series, they became much more eccentric, they became much more distorted, and there's this total break with any idea of function. So that's something else, a a sort of sub-theme that you might notice as you see um, the rest of the show. There's a play with with dislocating a common object and taking away the expected function. Question? Yeah. Uh, Did he specify how that's to be displayed? Yes. Because I've seen other works that he's done. He's done urinals as well. Yes, yes. And they were often displayed in the conventional uh, arrangement. Yeah. Sinks were just on the wall, like a sink. Right, right. No, you're quite right. And so, um, some of them, they come much closer to how we would actually see and potentially use. Uh, he's done, a, a, as you point out, he's done urinals. He's done a number of different plumbing fixtures. Um, But this one, yeah, when we acquire work, we generally get installation restrictions or directions. Yeah. So you'll see in the second gallery, there's also several works that play with that idea of function, um, remind us of things that we would interact with in a very uh, functional way normally, but in this context have been completely transformed. Um, Richard Archwager. this is a work by him from 1967 called Two Indentations. In my mind, this sort of fits in the category of a, of a fake object. It's not an imitation of a specific item, but I think it's meant to, it plays off of our expectations about form and material of ordinary furniture. And in fact, Richard Archwager, as a young artist, supported himself for some time as a furniture maker. So he had those skills, he had that background, and he chose to use the same materials that he used as a furniture maker. Um, So this is a work that's cited in Formica, which Artswager called the great ugly material, the horror of our age. And I think it does evoke the kind of ordinary functional counter or table that um, we're all familiar with. But in effect, it's an abstract relief that another thing it echoes is perhaps a picture frame. And it has these two indentations that give a physical form to what usually is only an illusionistic effect, looking into a picture frame with um, perspectival recession. So he's playing with illusion at the same time that he's playing with very literal materiality. There's other, the way this gallery evolved, there's many other instances actually of framing in this particular room. On opposite the Arschwager is a painting by Gerhard Richter. I had mentioned that Richter made paintings that were based on photographs, but this is actually not one of them. This is a painting that he constructed um, uh, abstractly out of his mind. But I think like Arschwager is doing that, knowing it's gonna evoke something that we've seen before, namely a picture frame um, or a window frame, excuse me, And that's made really much more um, clear by the uh, illusionistic cast shadows. And then the crystal green storefront down at the end of the gallery also employs frames. I think this is sort of um, uh, an interesting um, point of, of commonality that all of these artists are sort of playing with the idea the convention is that you look through a frame at the real subject matter inside of a painting, for instance, or through a window frame to what you're actually looking at. But here they're, they're, they're breaking down any kind of hierarchy of what the subject matter should be and asking us to focus instead on the framing device. The Cristo is from 1964. It's a very rare instance of a larger scale object by the artist. Um, as probably some of you may be familiar with Christo and his wife Jean-Claude, they're most well known for these ephemeral large-scale environmental works. Um, For instance, one of the more recent ones was in Central Park in New York called The Gates. Um, He's also done things such as wrapping the Reichstag in Berlin sending a fence across miles and miles of California landscape down to the Pacific Ocean coast. But before he started doing those kinds of works, um, he made objects. In the late 50s, they mostly were wrapped objects, which is a little bit echoed by that air conditioner that's above the doorway there. Um, But in the mid-60s, he made these storefronts, and this was not long after he came to New York, and it mimics very exactly the appearance of storefronts in downtown Manhattan that he saw on his first visit to New York. However, it's made entirely by new lumber, it's an illusion, it's not an actual storefront that's been displaced, just conceptually been displaced, taking something that is meant, it's architectural, meant to be an exterior, bringing it into the context of a gallery interior. The one item that is uh, an appropriation from real life is the doorknob. He stole it from his hotel room at the Chelsea Hotel, which is where he was living at that time. Uh, but just to return, I got off the point a little bit, just to return to the windows, the most sort of noticeable thing about this storefront, these um, windows that are meant to display wares, is meant to bring Uh, attract our vision to showcase items of merchandise have been blocked off. At the same time they're they're lit up from within so it's all about sort of um, opacity where we expect it to be transparent and sort of this denial of entry. I'll just briefly talk about the Rachel White read. I think it's a really stunning work from our collection. Uh, White Reed is very well known for the work she creates by casting. Um, usually her sculptures appear to be the thing that they mimic, but in most cases in a certain sense they're the opposite. Um, that's a confusing statement I'm sure, so I'll try to explain. So whereas with the Katarina Fritsch, where you started with a sculpture of the Madonna, she created a mold around that filled it with plaster and created many, many, many positive casts that then look the same as the original Madonna. Whiteread works with casting in a much more uh, multi-step and complicated way. Usually when you see one of her works in the gallery, they are the result of a series of both negative And positive castings. So for instance um, at first glance this looks like uh, an exact copy of two mattresses leaning against the wall. Once you start inspecting it there's some curious things. The slab that's closer to the wall for instance have these holes and that's kind of the first tip off. So actually what that is a cast of is the empty space, in other words, where there's air beneath a child's bed, not the bed itself. So she's built, she would have done something like build a um, mold around that space and cast that space. She also, um, this surface here where you see all these wrinkles of a sheet, is the negative cast of the surface of the mattress with a sheet on it with, combined with um, a positive cast of nothingness, of the absence of the mattress. Um, so there's something both very familiar and recognizable about these objects, but also strangely remote and um, really emotionally charged even though they appear at the more or less the same scale that a real mattress would. Uh, they're also this strange combination of original and copy at the same time. She always works with used items. The very first item of furniture that she ever cast was her own childhood wardrobe, and she cast that internal space. So I feel like it's very important to her that these are works that have already been transformed by human contact and human use. And I feel similarly about some of the other works in the show that refer to furniture in one way or another, and I would even include the Gober sink, you know, something that we re- re Um, something that we interact with bodily, you know, the sink being the place that we go to cleanse ourselves, to purify ourselves, you know, the urinal in another way. Um, So that connection between us and the object, I think is quite strong in some of the, the pieces in this show. So let's move into one of the later galleries. This small gallery is the room that I think of as the landscape room. I had mentioned at the beginning that while some of the works in the show refer to simple physical objects and others to photographic images, that there is a subcategory here also referring to the everyday natural landscape. Um, This is a painting by Gerhard Richter from 1997, and although it's from the late 90s, it's definitely connected to... um, his investigations in the 60s, I had mentioned working from photography. So it shows, it's called waterfall and it shows a waterfall, but it's painted from a um, a snapshot from a photograph. Uh, he's very beautifully blurred the image, which I can't help, but feel is a um, Analogous strategy as Salomon's doubling of the image It's something that reminds us that he's working from a photograph a blurry pho- a blurry photograph is something that we're all familiar with um, So he's playing with the tradition here of landscape painting, which is quite a romantic one in European art um, He's Evoking that in us, but at the same time, he's sort of deflating the idealism of that a little bit. The waterfall, which gives the work its title, is actually quite small within the frame. He's um, he's made it uh, a portrait format, which is quite unusual for within the conventions of landscape. Um, and you feel much more that he's not trying to convey the essence of the ostensible subject matter, the waterfall, it's really appearances. It's really just the appearance. Portrait, just that it's a vertical format rather than a horizontal. Um, This work by John Gerard is one of the most recent pieces in the show. It's from 2008. It's called Grow Finish Unit, uh, parentheses, Eva, Oklahoma. This, uh, Gerard is an Irish artist but he's very interested in the American Dust Bowl region and how this work was executed was using 3D gaming software and by that I mean the um, the digital software that allows uh, designers to construct video game landscapes. Um, And so he, it's based on data captured at a real site. He went to a real pig processing plant, that's what we see here, these buildings, and took photographs of the entire site um, and fed that into software and worked from that. So at first it appears extremely realistic Um, You don't notice at first that it's, in effect, completely computer-generated. But there's something a little bit too smooth, perhaps, a little bit too beautiful, uh, that tips you off to the fact that it's actually at quite a remove from the real natural world. And I think there's also something um, significant, of course, in his choice of a pig processing plant. This is not the the typical subject matter for for landscape. It's beautiful, but it's also rather bleak, and it really speaks to our consumption in sort of industrial-scale agriculture. The pond you see in the foreground is actually pig waste. All the animals are cooped up in these buildings and out of sight, and there's no humans there. There's this real disconnect. There's an absence of people in the landscape it's it's a twenty four hour three hundred and sixty five day piece by which I mean it's keyed in time to real time so if you come here in the early morning you'll see early morning light if you come here in the evening you'll see um, evening light and it's also uh, a landscape that you can really navigate as if you were in a, using a video game so our visitors unfortunately are not able to do this, but I'll just show you that the piece is built to pivot here, and as you pivot the screen, it's um, steering you through the landscape in the same way as if you're using a video console or joystick. Uh, The last work in this gallery is a piece by Roxy Payne called New Fungus Crop. Uh, This is another example of imitation of nature that's so convincing that it is surreal, um, it's a kind of hyper realism that evokes you know, a, a reaction of both belief and complete disbelief at the same time. He did not, he based all of the models of the mushrooms on real species. He did not however um, imitate them piece by piece. He didn't base each one on a real mushroom. So there's some combination of copying and interpretation and invention at the same time. One of the things I love the most about the work is actually its structure on the table, because to me that's one of the most uncanny parts is how it's on this, there's this preposterously long stretch between the legs where if it seems impossible that that much of the dirt and moisture and weight could be sustained uh, just by these four table legs. Uh, One of these, the large white mushrooms um, are called, are based on a real mushroom called the European Destroying Angel and apparently it's a highly poisonous mushroom and Payne has described this landscape as a battlefield. That it's about different species sort of um, contesting and competing for resources. So there's one more gallery in the show, it's quite small. So let's carefully go in. I'll mention to you before we go in that there's a slide projector in the middle of the room, so just be careful of that. So this is the room that I think of as the photography room, although there's other works in the show, as I've mentioned, that are based on photographic images. Um, Of course, when you start making works that consist of images based on images, based on images, this raises really complicated issues about authorship and um, originality and truth and the restaging of an image usually opens up new readings of the original. In all of these instances, let's see, where should we start? On that wall, um, a work by a Japanese artist, Yashimasa Morimura, it's called Self-Portrait Actress after Marlena Dietrich II. This is part of a series that Morimura uh, made that are based on Western movie stars, all-female, that he uh, impersonates in costume, in body language, in pose. Some of them, not this one, are in a background that's identifiably Japanese. He is, as I mentioned, a Japanese artist making his work in Japan. Um, So partly it's about national identity and sort of a mixed national and cultural identity. He's talked about these works in in terms of um, how Western culture has influenced him. Um, but obviously there's also a great play uh, here with gender. I think it's interesting that he's not imitating, he's not even attempting to imitate something true about Marlena Dietrich. He's not claiming any kind of knowledge about what she was really like as a person. He's very directly aping a specific series of photographs of Dietrich that we're familiar with. There's these very iconic publicity stills of Dietrich um, in, you know, interestingly, menswear, the tuxedo and top hat. And that's true of the other actress uh, portraits, that he, self-portraits that he's made as well. He's usually imitating the actress in character. He's not claiming to show us um, Audrey Hepburn, He's showing us um, her character in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, The works here along these two walls are by a young artist named Nikki S. She is um, Korean, although now in the United States for quite some time. She made these works in the late 90s when she was in graduate school. She started it when she was a graduate student at Yale. She basically, did a series of projects, they're called projects, infiltrating, studying, and imitating a particular subculture. It might be a cultural group like skateboarders, it might be a demographic group like Hispanics or senior citizens. And she'd spend a great deal of time handing out with picking a group that she was interested in, introducing herself, she was very straightforward about saying that she was an artist, making a project, um, hanging out with them, and then taking on the accoutrements of that particular subculture. I think it's a very interesting work that says something about, among other things, the the immigrant experience of um, that experience of being one of reinvention, or at least potential reinvention. Um, I also think that it's a very potentially problematic work in some ways because it very much is making this connection between identity and appearances, but in a complicated way. She would play out these projects, as I understand it, over the period of weeks and months. And the, photogra- the act of photography was not a... Um, not in the mode of sort of modernist art photography, but really sort of snapshot street photography. She usually just hand the camera to somebody who happened to be there at the scene. At the beginning, she would take a friend along and say, just take a picture of me. So she's creating it really more through her social action, her um, performance of that role, than as a photographer in the traditional sense that we might think of. Uh, finally, um, the work on the opposite wall is by an artist named Kota Zaba, a German artist who's now working in the United States. It's called The History of Photography Remix. And it takes the form of a slide projection show. As always talked about this as um, growing out of an experience he had as a graduate student at Stanford in an art history class. And if any of you have taken an art history class in college, um, you'll know that slideshows are sort of the backbone <laughs> of art historical pedagogy. Um, so this is his personal idiosyncratic history of photography. It's a mixture of iconic art photography, um, photojournalism, personal snapshots. In other words, things that we might recognize and are intended to recognize and things that there's no way that we would. Um, He takes the original photograph, scans it in to a computer, and then manually draws through um, something, I don't know if it's Illustrator, but uh, some kind of software like Illustrator basically does a hand drawing on the computer of the photograph, which has this effect of making these very simplified, flattened out images, which flatten things out, you know, in more ways than one. It's taken away all the sort of Um, shadow and and modeling so to speak from the photographic image, but it's also flattening the whole thing in terms of history and the passage of time. It's not the images are not being shown in chronological order, they're all mixed up and because they've all been transformed through Isalba's copying, a a work from 1920 is going to look like a work from 1999. Um, So I think it's this very sophisticated Non hierarchical presentation that makes you think about how we acquire knowledge from images and also the process of, of memory, of, of how images stick in our mind and um, how we recognize them. Is the artwork itself a slide or is the slide an image of uh, something on film or paper? That's a good question. Um, the artwork is the the slideshow. It has to be a slide projector. Um, it has to be uh, analog slides. Although I will say that there's also a book version that he produced of this work that has the images printed in a book. So it. Exists in a couple different ways. But I mean, I, I like that question because it really s- speaks to one of the challenges for museums with these works that take an unconventional form and that we have a responsibility to um, preserve and show in the way that the artist intended forever. And as you may or may not be aware, and well, that I have become very aware putting this work on view, slides are um, essentially an obsolete medium now. People don't make slide duplication film, for instance, anymore. And uh, it's harder and harder to get all the accoutrements, um, the projectors themselves, uh, the duplication film, the slide mounts. So it's an interesting, um, you know, an, again, just very historically specific because these days I don't think art history students uh, even see slides ever because everything's digital. So they see, might see a slide show, but it'll be... Um, a PowerPoint. There's 40 images. It, it, there's 80 in the the carousel. So yeah, it's the whole show together is the piece. Well thank you very much for joining me. I'm happy to take questions informally afterwards if anybody's interested. Thanks.